What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the New Evangelicals Podcast. It's great to have you here with me. On this episode, we do a deep dive into purity culture. Now, let me just say that on my Instagram account, at the New Evangelicals, whenever we have this conversation, my DMs blow up with story after story of serious uh, trauma caused from purity culture. Out of all the topics, actually, on um, my account that we talk about, this is one of the biggest ones by far. So I'm really excited to have this uh, conversation with Dr. Camden because she is a licensed psychologist who practices and also is really passionate about undoing the harm from purity culture. And she's also a pretty devoted Christian. So we have a really interesting conversation. She actually has some articles um, written about purity culture. I put the links in the show notes. So you can tap it right there. One of them is called The Five Myths of purity culture. And in that, she kind of debunks some of the most common myths that a lot of us were taught, especially the ones that were taught to women that cause so much harm um, in their marriages and, and in their future relationships. So take a look at that first if you have time, because that might help you with this conversation. The other interesting thing is that we also talk about how morality is formed uh, from adolescence into um, adulthood and how that really matters. So this is a really good um, conversation. I hope you all enjoy it. And please do not forget, if you enjoy this podcast, please, 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 if you can give us a rating and a review, that would be such a huge help. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my interview with Dr. Camden. All right, everyone, I am back with another fascinating guest. I'm excited to see where this conversation goes because this is a big topic for many people um, on the New Evangelicals Instagram. I have Dr. Camden with me. She is a licensed psychologist who really specializes in purity culture. So, and you found me, by the way, right? I think you reached out to me. That's okay, right. you did. So we'll call this a God thing. I don't know, but it is great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for making time. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Tim. Absolutely. I, might I ask, how did you find me, by the way? I'm curious to know. Probably just the hashtag purity culture. Nice. Um, it worked. <laughs> yeah. And I'm always looking for accounts that are talking about this in a nuanced way and how I can contribute to that conversation. So I think, and I really liked the name, the new evangelicals. Um, because that allows space for people who consider themselves ex-evangelical, but also people who might still be evangelical, but trying to find another path. So I like that. Yes. Yeah. That was some of the intent behind it. Like, I think if, you know, it's more about trying to reclaim this title than trying to throw it away. And I get why some throw it away. Mm -hmm. I, I really do. I'm sure you do as well. But for me, I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to roll with it. But anyway, it is great having you. And again, I appreciate you making the time. So yeah. I'm, I'm interested in this conversation for a lot of reasons, and I'm glad that we have someone like yourself who is trained in this field of psychology and is practicing and has a lot to offer. So you, the first thing you sent me was actually an article that you wrote. I think it's called The Five Myths of Purity Culture. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So talk to me about, about that, because the five myths that you write down are the myth of the spiritual barometer, the fairy tale myth, the flip switch myth, the damaged goods myth, the women as gatekeeper myth. And so mm -hmm. I'm reading those and I'm like, wow, yes, all of these I have either had someone send me a DM about or I've experienced myself. So what made you think of those five things as like the, the, the things to write about? I wrote that article back in, I want to say like 2017. And then I submitted 
to a writing contest for Christians for Biblical Equality, and I was one of their winners in 2018. And so that's what got me started writing about purity culture. And I start, now I've started working on a book. I'm working on a book oh. of um, these myths and helping people heal from the myths and reconstruct their Christian faith. Um, because there's a lot of books criticizing purity culture, but not a lot that provide a path forward to how do we think about our faith now and, and reconstruct that and our belief system. So, yeah, so these five myths I developed really just out of my own personal experience growing up in purity culture, because I'm in my 30s. So, you know, that as many of us are that, yes. that grew up in purity culture and we're very familiar with this. And then just what I um, have heard from my clients and friends too. So I'm in private practice as a therapist. I also work as a college professor right now online, but I have taught um, full-time on campus before too. So even seeing these college students who are, you know, 10 to 15 years younger than me and seeing how purity culture is still affecting them, you know, purity culture is still out there, um, you know, even, even now. So, Mm. so yeah, so I just developed my theory of these five myths based on my professional and personal experience growing up in purity culture. So it sounds like what you're saying is that you grew up a Christian, like many of us in the evangelical church bubble, you experienced all of the purity culture things that go along with that. Are, are, are you still a practicing Christian now? Have you kind of walked away? Like, where do you stand on that personal level? Mm-hmm. I am still a Christian. Yeah. I, I feel like I never, I always have considered myself a Christian. I never got to the point where I left the faith completely, but I do feel like I went through some period of doubting and some might call deconstruction. When I was in grad school, getting my doctorate in psychology, um, it was a Christian integrative program, which means that um, I got all the psychological knowledge, but then I also got um, classes in theology and hermeneutics and things like that. Hmm. Um, And that really challenged my faith. And then meeting with clients for the I'm as a therapist and seeing all sorts of suffering and trauma really challenged my faith. So I went through a few years of, um, of lots of doubts where I stopped going to church for a little while and just, and just felt very distant from God. Um, still considered myself a Christian, but just really wasn't active in practicing my faith or just didn't fully believe it all. Um, and it really was just through relationships and reading a lot of books and exploring and thinking through these issues that I came back to church and um, like I said, never stopped becoming a Christian. So it's not like I recommitted to, you know, to my (laughs) faith, but just felt like I could fully embrace my faith again, I think. um, And fully embrace going to church again and prayer and trusting God again, rebuilding that trust in him again, that had been broken. Um, But my faith looks very different today than it did, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And that's, that's the thing with deconstruction is even when there is reconstruction, it's a much, it looks much different. It's, it's like, it's been through a war or something, you know, that there's, there's some battle wounds there and there's, but there's also some depth and some nuance to it that wouldn't have been there if I hadn't have taken the time to, to question um, and to struggle with my faith. So I'm very um, grateful for that. Um, but it, it, it's still painful at the same time. Yes, absolutely. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, it's a good way of putting it. Um, your faith is intact, but it looks way different. And I'm very much in the same boat where it's like, yeah, you know, me 10 years ago would not believe me now if I told them <laughs> where I would be. <laughs> but uh, like you said, I'm as painful as some of those, for me, those like dark night of the soul moments were, um, I'm grateful for them because they definitely have... Uh, 
they definitely have given me more depth, which is great. So for the sake of our conversation, let's start here. How do you define purity culture? I mean, this is this is a big term. It's an umbrella term. Are we talking like, you know, Josh Harris, I kissed eating a bye? Are we talking about purity pledges? Like, how would you define purity culture? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know how, what they say about culture, the saying about culture is that it's like a fish in water. You don't know that you're in the culture. You don't know that you're in the water. And so I think that evangelical culture is, and then purity culture is maybe a subset of evangelical culture um, because you just take everything for granted. So yes, Joshua Harris and I kissed dating goodbye, which would be like courtship culture. I think modesty culture also plays into that. And I read a lot of books on that when I was a teenager, especially being a teenage girl, you know, it was very emphasized for women. Um, So courtship culture, modesty culture plays into that. And then just the cultural artifacts that go along with purity. So it's not just the belief in purity or abstinence until marriage. It's all the artifacts that go along with that, which would be books and um, purity balls, which I didn't go to, but I have have heard about and seen on uh, documentaries and purity rings, which I did have, I did have a true love weights ring and those pledges. And, um, and even for some people making um, pledges not to kiss until their wedding day or not to date at all. And just, so it's all of the artifacts that go along with the belief system. It's not just the belief, but it's the extra stuff that was added to it. The extra biblical stuff one might say. Yeah, I mean, yeah, one might say <laughs> at at um, <laughs> at the least, I would think, right? So, you know, yeah. obviously, there's a lot of ingredients that make purity culture this purity culture thing. It seems like, and I know that this obviously has affected men and women in different ways, but at least in my experience of my account, it seems to have affected women the most and the most severely. Um, why do you think that is? And is that true in yeah. your experience? I mean, maybe it's mm-hmm. not, but what do you think? Yeah. Um, I mean, we were talking about before we started recording that, that your, our Instagram audience and you were saying what percentage is females right now? Your- it's 68%. Yeah. Well, 93% of my audience is female. So yeah, I think, uh, and I write about feminism too. So it makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. and gender equality since that 93%. I love that. Those 7% guys that are there, but, um, but yeah, I think, I think it more so affected women because just, even in the broader American culture side of evangelicalism, um, sexuality has always been looked at different for women than men. And there's always been patriarchy that's affected it. And, um, and always been virginity and purity have always been emphasized for women more than men. And this is just historically, even outside of the church, that it's a virtue that women have to keep. Um, in fact, if you or anyone listening saw the show Bridgerton on Netflix, um, I, when I watched it, it's just, it's a show that takes place in like 18, I think I want to say 1800s England, where they're like, you know, dating and, and, and getting matched and um, the, the parents are matching them up and things like that. And there's so many similarities between that and late 1990s, early 2000s purity culture, a lot of patriarchy that affected it. And that's what I think caused more harm to women than to men is the patriarchal roots of it. Okay, so I I'm, I'm currently reading a book uh, called Jesus and John Wayne. I'm not sure if you heard about it. It's been kind of it's been making its way through my my sphere. So I'm going through it, and it's it's yeah. a pretty powerful book. I mean, the narrative that the author paints is like pretty devastating, and she talks a lot about and she hasn't mentioned purity culture directly yet where I'm at in the book, but I can see the groundwork being laid of how even like the 
fifties and sixties, the Christians of, of that era were really focused on the the uh, a patriarchal family, the man at the house at the head of the household, the woman underneath of him, and a lot of books came out for women about pretty much making themselves. 24-7 sexually available to their husband, lest he would go mm-hmm. out and cheat on them. So it does seem mm-hmm. like like the foundational um, rhetoric for purity culture was laid even decades before it with the perception of, okay, like women don't give your husband a reason to cheat, like almost as if men are just mm-hmm. uncontrollable. Like we just can't control our lust. And if women can't solve it for us, we're just going to do something crazy. And that's not our fault. That's your fault. I mean, isn't that like gaslighting? Like, aren't there terms for that? But I, I right. but like, how did no one see it then? And how do we see it now? Like, I don't understand that, you know, like in your experience, why has this been a thing for so long? Well, you're actually getting into one of my myths there. The women is gatekeepers myth because mm. it's been a belief for so long. We didn't see it in the 1990s and 2000s either with purity culture, because those same messages were given of, you have to give your husband sex. You have to be always available or he could turn to porn or he could have an affair. And then for um, if you were unmarried, it was you ha- women, you have to be the one to put on the brakes. You have to be the one to enforce the boundaries in, in your intimate relationship with your partner and what where, you know, is going to determine the boundaries, too. So you have to be careful about what you wear so you don't cause them to stumble and things like that. So. So, yeah. So this has been going on for decades. Um where women were held responsible for men's sexuality and, and sexual temptation and, and lust instead of men taking responsibility for themselves. So it's, even though purity culture did more negatively harm women from, from our experience, it's still negatively harmed men because I think it robbed a lot of young men, the opportunity to learn self-control or just how to deal with lust or temptation, because it was always the girl who had the responsibility for that. So they could, they could really not take responsibility for it as much in a dating relationship. Yes. Um, you know, it's funny you say that because um, I've been th- thinking a lot personally, like how maybe purity culture has affected me in ways I'm not even aware of. And something I, I kind of put together more recently was, um, you know, my wife and I, we decided to wait, for, you know, until we were married to have sex for the first time. And so, you know, I'm always just, again, you're taught as a man, like, you know, your desire is going to be, you just want to have sex all the time. Like that's your desire. And we got married, of course, you know, we're newlyweds. So yeah, we had sex all the time. But then after a while, there were moments where I'd be like, I'm not really in the mood. I'd be like, wait, am I broken? Like, am I, am I not sexual enough? It's been like 36 hours, you know? So I kind of had to like unpack that note, Tim, like this can be normal as well. Like everyone's sex drive is different. You're going to have seasons of high sex and seasons of low sex drive. That's okay. But I was so used to believing that as a man, I I would just want one thing. Men only want one thing all the time. And like, I wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, the first time I told my wife, like, can we just like cuddle tonight? I'm like, who is this person? Like, is this even normal for a guy? You know, but it turns out it was, it is normal. <laughs> so that was it an ex- experience for me as well. Of like, maybe like purity culture affected me in a whole different way that I wasn't even aware of by telling me like, I'm, I'm just some, some, you know, sex crazed man who can't control himself. But in reality, like I don't always want sex and that's okay. Right. You're a normal person who's tired sometimes. And now you have, a ch- we were just talking, you have a, a young um, child. I have a two-year-old. Oh, yeah. And so yeah, that definitely changes uh, your Change sex life. Change the game. You have <laughs> very much so. Very much so. Especially that postpartum period. So Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, it's interesting. Someone messaged me and said that like, pretty much what they said was that even um, after they had their, their first child, like they were just, 
their husband wanted sex like right away and they felt obligated to give it to them. And I was kind of like shocked because I'm, I'm thinking like, and everyone's different, but if my wife is like obviously healing physically from giving birth, I don't want to have sex with her, <laughs> like, you know, because she's healing. So it is interesting yeah. to see like how some women feel like pressured, you know, from maybe their partner because they've been taught that, you know, as someone in purity culture, like I, if I don't give him sex now, he might cheat on me or do something that I'm really going to regret now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I totally, I, I hear that story more often than I ever thought I would on this account from women all over the place. Um, do you think that, you know, the root of that has just been from just, do you think it's like intentional? You know, like, do you think purity culture is intentionally telling women like, hey, just be okay for essentially marital rape if you need to be, but lest your husband go out and, and cheat on you? Or do you think it was just like a good idea twisted that became like this extreme of what we're dealing with now? So that example in particular that you're giving, I don't think is a good idea that got twisted. I think um, anytime that there's oppression, which which patriarchy or you know hierarchical gender roles, I would consider a form of oppression. Anytime there's a form of oppression, it's a way for the dominant group to maintain power and control. And so, yeah, so the, the patriarchy that underlies purity culture was a way to control women's sexuality. Um, and to and to shame them really into um, into conformity and submission. Hmm. So to you know the ideals of the virtuous uh, pure woman, and also um, submission to their husbands. Like like you said, that you have to be always available, and you have to. It's a sex is an obligation or a duty rather than a pleasure. Um, you know, I, I love how you shared your story of how you know purity culture even affected you and as a man and um, a married man. And I think also it's like affects married women because they think like, I'm not supposed to enjoy sex. Like this is supposed to be for him, not for me. And so they right. just ignore their sexual desires or sexual pleasures or urges. Um, and that doesn't really lend itself to a very fulfilling sex life if only one person's interested or if only one person's pleasure is being attended to. Yeah, I agree with you. I was also thinking about all the different scripture verses that have been plucked out to support that. You know, like it is amazing how the Bible is always at like the center of so much of this kind of oppression, I guess. You know, we're like men take the Bible, tell us how to interpret it. And if we're not interpreting it correctly, or which means in their way, it's problematic. But it does seem like, I mean, what is your like pulse now, though, in 2021? Are you seeing not people who are leaving the church because we i think people who are leaving are leaving because of these kinds of reasons but in the church itself do you see a shift in the gender roles in in women being for lack of a better term more empowered to enjoy their sex and to you know and to be able to say no what are you seeing in church culture because that's different than deconstruction mm-hmm. culture yeah I wish I could uh, say I wish I could give you more good news but I also live in the south so I think I live in the South. I live in a conservative area. I still um, attend a church that is uh, that has evangelical um, mm-hmm. denomination. So, so I still see pretty traditional um, gender roles. Um, not overtly, they would never overtly say that they were patriarchal or hierarchical. But really, when you look at it, um, they still limit some roles to women. So, so that's what I still see. Um, but in the broader society, I feel like we're more accepting of women as leaders. I mean, we have a woman vice president now, um, thankfully, and, um, and we're accepting of women in the workplace, but we're still not as accepting of women as leaders in marriage or the church, I think. 
it feels like those are the last two frontiers for women to really, um, you know, to fully take their place in as marriage and church. It really seems like that is often the case, mostly in the evangelical church. Like a lot of, you know, it's funny, a lot of like mainland Protestant churches have kind of been ahead of this and they're much more conservative Mm -hmm. in their worship, but much more liberal in their practice, which is weird because you would think that churches are like, you know, we're a church of freedom. We have, you know, we're relevant. Sometimes they're the most conservative in these ways. So it seems like even in the big picture church culture, the evangelical church has like this, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's because they're so committed to like not changing with the time. So anything that is is changing is like seems like a threat. But it just seems like they're always one step behind on any major social issue. I mean, even the issue of racism, we're seeing they're still behind on mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I just don't know like what is causing the same cycle to repeat no matter how many times people like us are in the church. I mean, I go to an evangelical church too. And we're trying to say like, mm-hmm. there's something wrong here. And they're like, Nah, there's nothing wrong here. Like, you're the problem. It's like, me? (laughs) You know, I mean, how do you think, like, we change some of that stuff? It seems to come from the belief that we should be in the world, but not of the world. Mm. And, like, oh, this stuff, like, feminism is of the world. So we we shouldn't, you know, that's not biblical. Um, I just finished reading, it's interesting you mentioned Jesus and John Wayne. That's on my reading list. But I just finished reading The Making of Biblical Womanhood. That's on my list. Yeah, she's a historian, um, a history professor at Baylor University. And so book takes a historical perspective on um, gender roles and patriarchy. And so that was really interesting. I hadn't read the historical perspective before, um, but she basically makes the, the claim that um, complementarianism or, or, you know, this form of sexism in the church is not a Christian. It doesn't have its roots in Christian beliefs. It's actually a secular rooted um, mm. system. So, yeah. So she makes that argument. So, you know, I know that one of the questions that you brought up that to talk about, which I thought was really good is talking about how faith and morals develop, right? And then how purity culture kind of failed us, which I think kind of fits into this part of the conversation here, because there obviously we're seeing this connection of um, a lot of people that I talk to on my account have left the church because of purity culture. I mean, that was one of like mm-hmm. the main ingredients. It's that, it's hell, and it's the LGBTQ issue. You put those three yep. in the oven at 400 degrees and you come out with a deconstructing Christian like almost every single time. So mm-hmm. talk about that because it seems like, like, like you're pretty passionate about it. Give us like some of the psychology behind faith and how morals develop and then how purity culture has failed us. Okay. <clears throat> I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah, this is, I'll I'll put on my psychology professor hat here, but but try not to bore you. Um, But yeah, so there's this theory of moral development developed by a psychologist called Lawrence Kohlberg. And so his theory is like, how as children do we develop our morals and our decision making of like, what is a moral or ethical action? Um, And so in the early stages, when we're young children, our morals are just based on avoiding punishment and obtaining rewards. So it's, you know, you can see this in kids. It's just about avoiding discipline or getting a piece of candy or some kind of treat, just looking out for your own self-interest. Mm. And I purity culture, I see it here with a couple of my myths. The fairy tale myth, which is the, the myth that if you remain pure and you follow all the rules, that God's going to bless you with a spouse in a fairy tale marriage. So here's the reward. You're going to obtain the reward for remaining pure. And that goes hand in hand with um a, my, another one of my myths, the flip switch myth, that when you get married, 
a switch just automatically flips and sex is going to be amazing, and pleasurable right away, um, just because you waited, that that's the reward for waiting. Um, and so purity culture was speaking to these earlier stages, which is during young childhood, rather than speaking to the later stages. Hmm. Um, moving on into the school age, our morals are all about being accepted, social approval, obeying authority and pleasing authority, being good girls and good boys. And we see that in purity culture, too. Um, one of my myths is the yeah. spiritual barometer that you are a better Christian if you stay pure, that that your virginity or your purity is a barometer or a measure of how spiritually mature you are, how mature your faith is. So again, you're like a good girl or good boy, or you maintain um, this approval from others if you hold to purity. Um, and then the later stages when we're adults is when we base our morals on our own chosen values, ethics, and universal principles. So that's when we really put some thought into it, maybe even some deconstruction of those <laughs> earlier beliefs. And we're balancing the social order and what's good for society with our own individual rights and what's good for us. Um, and so we see that right now with the fight for social justice, that um, that we, even if um, we don't see like how, you know, we as white people, that we haven't experienced racism or discrimination and in those same ways, but we fight for it because we have these chosen values of equality and justice and we mm. celebrate diversity rather than that it benefits me. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So purity culture was really speaking to these earlier stages that are in young ch childhood and like school age childhood rather than in the adulthood stages. And that's one of the reasons why I feel like the majority of people who make these pledges do not remain virgins. Okay. So it's like 88% who of who make these pledges do not stay virgins like are not virgins when they get married um and so the pledges don't work and then as you said many people are leaving the church because they weren't taught how to think through and make moral decisions at an adult level they were only given reasons for that were for children at that yeah. level hmm. that's the sound of me prepping the grill with reynolds wrap and the sound of me not doing dishes and the sound of me spending more time outside with my family. Easy prep, cook, and clean. Make time with Reynolds Wrap. I like the sound of that. So, I think what you're, what you're saying is that purity culture failed us in the sense of, like, the way it built what is moral was based on, like, an earlier development in our, in our psyche that couldn't last into adulthood. And so, when we started rethinking our values based on, like, you know, that adulthood way— of like, okay, what, what's the value that I'm going to value just for the sake of valuing it almost? It's like, well, <laughs> I don't know if some of these fit that anymore. So is that kind of like what you're saying, mm -hmm. like with how purity culture failed us? Yeah, our moral reasoning has evolved beyond that. And we weren't given any tools for how to make those moral decisions. And we weren't giving any reasons for being pure or being, you know, abstinent until marriage other than those earlier reasons, those early stages of moral development. So they really run out of steam. They're built mm. on this really unstable ground. Um, mm. And so it doesn't last for a lot of people or it causes people to leave the faith. Like you said, or really, or really, or really question the faith. 
Or it also leads people just to hide it. I mean, the reality is, right, like in, in evangelical church culture, to play on like a music, like I'm, I'm a drummer, I play on the worship team, right? Obviously, when, to serve in any kind of church in any way, you have to sign usually some kind of pledge or there's some kind of code of conduct. And one of them is like you'll, you'll, remain, you'll uh, remain sexually pure, which means, you know, like if you're single, no pornography, no this, no that, no that. I mean, we all know statistically like 80%, I think, of men or higher are looking at pornography Consistently, I think it's like sixty percent of women now. It's it's a higher rate as well are also viewing pornography. So chances are that that single person is probably doing that anyway. And because mm-hmm. they feel like they can't they can't admit that without being either kicked off the team or like feeling guilty for it, they would rather just hide it and let no one else know and kind of take on that internalized guilt from that moral compass that they've kind of been handed. Um, and it really creates a lot of problems and also creates like an unspoken rule almost, almost like a don't ask, don't tell, right? Like if if two people are dating on the team, we're just going to assume that they're not doing anything, but we're definitely not going to ask because we don't, we don't really want to know. Do you find that also, uh, you know, in the same spot with like your church or your church culture as well of like, <laughs> this purity culture doesn't make any sense because no one can even, no one can live up to it. <laughs> yeah. I can see what you mean about the, we're just not going to ask, don't ask, don't tell. I think, I think we feel that way about, um, we're not going to ask if couples live together, you know, before marriage, we're just going to pretend that we don't know that they have the same address or something like that. They just hang out real late a lot, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because that, because that implies they're, they're having sex. And so, um, so I, I do see that. And, but I think the word that you mentioned there that stuck out to me was shame, because that's something that comes up in every interview I do about purity culture and every everything I talk about is um, everybody felt shame from this. Everybody could be affected in different ways, but it seems like shame is the universal experience after purity culture, whether that's shame um, that you're still single and didn't find someone, didn't get married, or you're sh- shame because your married sex life is not what you thought it was, or shame because you did have sex, premarital sex, and now you're damaged goods, which is another one of my myths. Um, the damaged goods, you're broken and dirty and tainted if you have premarital sex and just you won't be a whole complete self. Um, so shame. Shame was just a way that they tried to get us to be, like I said earlier, good girls and good boys, like keep us in order and, and keep us conforming um, to, to what their, their ideals were. So let me, all right, let's, let, let's ask the elephant in the room. Let me ask the big question. All right. So you're obviously, you're a licensed psychologist, you know, you're a Christian. I think you told me before the interview started, you hold to what you would call is a traditional sexual ethic, right? So I would assume mm-hmm. that would mean like, you know, no sex before marriage or something like that. So my question is, you have two 17 year olds who are dating, right? Let's say they've been dating for like a year and a half. So they're as serious as you can get for a 17 year old. How, I mean, what, what do you tell them? Right? Because like purity culture says, okay, great. Um, don't touch yourself. Don't touch each other. Don't look at anything and just hold in your sexual desire until you get married, which in our culture is getting is later and later. So I just feel like Mm -hmm. personally, right. That the purity culture, sexual ethic is literally unobtainable. I mean, it's like hitting the lottery for every one person that did all three of those things. There are a million and more who could not. So what is your, like, what's your view on this? I mean, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't agree with, with all of the hard lines that purity culture drew. So I don't agree, you know, that you can't kiss before marriage or, or things like that. Um, right. 
And I don't agree with like black and white, a lot of black and white statements because um, I was single until my husband and I didn't get married till we were almost 30. So, mm-hmm. so our boundaries when we were dating at 28 and 29 were looked a lot different than my boundaries in, you know, my college relationship when I was 18. Right. Um, because we were just in a totally different stage of life. We had our own places, you know, we weren't in college, things like that. Um, but like you said, I do have, I do still hold to a traditional sexual ethic. I do still believe in, in, premarital sexual abstinence. Um, I do still think it's biblical and, and what God asks of us, but I don't think that there's, um, this, you know, I don't think you're damaged goods and mm-hmm. beyond, you know, here, if you do, if you do mess up. So, so what you're saying of like, it's, it's unattainable. I think a lot of the extra biblical stuff is unobtainable. Um, like expecting, um, young adults to never masturbate ever. That is probably unrealistic. And I've had their clients before who have come to me because they have these struggles with pornography and masturbation. And we talk through their reasons why, why that. And I, and I ask them their beliefs because as a psychologist, it's all about honoring my client's beliefs and and Mm. the goals that they set for sometimes their goal is to never masturbate. And I'm like, you're a 21 year old single guy. Like I just, good luck, buddy. (laughs) I think that's a really tall goal. And you know, if you that goal, how is that going to affect you? Because shame is a huge trigger for, um, totally. for people following patterns that they, that they don't want to. So, um, so a lot of those things were not obtainable, but I think the, the heart of it can be obtainable. Um, you know, maintaining purity or, you know, sexual abstinence before marriage can be obtainable. Um, if yeah. the two the two partners are on the same page about it and are honoring and agreeing and respectful of those values. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, yeah, that that poor guy. I mean, frankly, yeah. as someone who was 21 at one point, you know, and it dealt with that shame, right? Like, you know, being, again, a person in purity culture, like every time I would mess up, so to speak, I'd be like, oh, I, I failed. Like, you know, I'm just, whatever it is, like, I'm just, I, I, I can't believe I, I can't stop doing this, whatever it would be. And it does seem like if someone just told me like, hey, it's, you're, you're, you're going to be okay. Like, it's okay. Your, your life's not ruined because you masturbated. I'd be like, really? You know, like that, it's almost like once you had the permission, I probably would be thinking about it as, as not nearly as much as I did because I was trying to fight it all the time. Does that make sense? You know, like this idea, mm-hmm. like you, you can't have the cake versus have all the cake you want by slice two. You're like, I'm done. I don't want any more versus just like trying not to eat like an entire cake. Cause you could finally have it, you know, the one time. Um, right, does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, the shame about it almost becomes fuels the obsessive thinking about it. Like yes. it's like I can't that now, and so then if I'm always thinking about it, I'm more likely to be tempted to do it. And just yeah, I exactly. See that. So one more question about this while I have you here: um, consent. I feel like in like secular culture. Um, you know, the big thing right now is consent, which of course I think we both agree is really important at any stage in your life, mm-hmm. married or not. Do you think like mm-hmm. that is, um, I have a lot of people who would tell me, Hey, I think Tim, that it's not so much about like sex before or after marriage. It's more about consent and also about the quality of the relationship that you're in. Right. Like I, and I've also made this argument as well. Like, you know, technically, if we're going to get like ultra biblical, the term sexual morality, I mean, it doesn't just mean like when one man and woman like get together, there's other layers to that statement that Paul makes. And in the Genesis story, you know, like when Adam and Eve had sex, there's no marriage ceremony. I mean, they had sex and they were that they were together, you know? So like there is this idea that you could kind of loosely pull of like, well, having sex with someone is, is what bonds you more than like, you know, a pastor saying, 
you're now married. So I'm sure you've ha- you've heard of some of this stuff before. How do you address it? What's your perspective on it? Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely agree that consent is necessary. Um, and in all stages, like you said, whether dating or married and, um, But for me, the conclusion that I've come to is that it's necessary, but not sufficient as the basis of a Christian sexual ethic. Mm. Um, And I know others will come to different conclusions and and I respect their process of coming to those conclusions. But I just think that that's not enough to call sex holy and sacred. Um, And if we're looking at it from from a worldview and we want to say that our sexuality is something that's holy and sacred and something that we've submitted to God because sexuality is a gift that he's given us. I just think that um, consent is not enough and that it has to be in the context of a covenantal relationship. Mm-hmm. So for me, it's marriage. Yeah, that's fair. That's a good perspective. You know, I, I, I am personally, I really wrestle with this one. This is a big one where I'm like, man, you know, am I, am I pushing myself too far the other direction? Cause I grew up so far in one direction. I'm always kind of wrestling yeah. in that tension and now having a 10 month old, thank God I'm a far away from that conversation, but one day it's going to be here. You know, I'm going to talk to my son about sex. Like, how do I do that? So, I mean, have you, have you, have you, have you any wisdom on that? Because frankly, like what I don't want to do is repeat the purity culture of like what I grew up in, but I also want my son and if I have a daughter one day to understand like how sex is a big deal. It's still serious. It is sacred. You know, as a Christian, there is a a spiritual aspect to it. No, you're not giving away a piece of your heart every single time, you know, but you know, handle with caution almost. So, I mean, any thoughts on raising kids with this? And one more thought about that before Mm -hmm. I let you answer. I would love to hear your thoughts on the modesty aspect, especially for women, because I really get stuck on like, if my my 14-year-old wants to wear shorts where I can see her butt crack, right? That's not, that's for me, (laughs) that for me is not about like a sexual thing. It's just like, no, no one needs to see your butt crack. No one needs to see my son's butt crack. Like, no, no one needs to see it. But how do you have that conversation without body shaming her? Because of course that is not the point. Her body is sacred and holy. So, all right, go ahead. I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. So you were saying like this, you know, I have an, a, 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 an infant. So these conversations are really far off. And, and I can think that way sometimes too, because I have a two-year-old and, but it's not just one conversation, like maybe our parents, but I know that's what my parents said. It was like, here's a James Dobson book, Yeah. <laughs> James Dobson book to read. And, and that's how I learned about sex. Yeah. So it's going to be just one conversation. It's a million little conversations along the way. And so I'm already talking about consent with my two-year-old hmm. and, he, and I'm doing that is just by talking with her about, okay, now I'm going to change your diaper. I'm going to, you know, now I'm going to wipe you or in the Mm. bath, like clean your vagina. Now I'm going to wash your bottom. Like, you know, using those proper terms and telling her what I'm doing and allowing her to participate in the process or, or even like, I'll try to go to give her a kiss. And if she says, no, mommy, it's like, okay, you're not Mm. ready for a kiss, you know, and I back away. So even now it's like, I'm trying to model and, and, show her and teach her what consent is. And so I think that lays a foundation later on for, you know, when she's older and we'll have to talk about sexual consent, but as far as, um, you know, modesty and body shaming and things like that, I think we want to start now by teaching our children that their bodies are beautiful and, Mm -hmm. and, um, made in the image of God and that their bodies, um, were given them, given to them by God to, as a, you know, a living sacrifice. And so we want to take care of our bodies and that means, you know, health and, exercise and and things like that, but it also means um, sexual health and it means making choices that are honoring to God with our bodies. 
Um, so I think that that can carry on into the discussion of sexual morals later on mm. when they're a little old. And then with modesty, I've thought about this a lot too, because there's, there's some part of me that sees that, that, that that's about, it's about self-respect. It's not just about, I'm not going to tell my daughter, no, you can't wear that because that'll cause men to lust. Cause it's like, no, they right. can handle their own. Thing. You know, you could be wearing a choir robe and they could still be lusting. So right. you know, that's on them, but it's about self-respect and wearing clothes that, um, that show respect for yourself, your character and your body. So I think that could look different for different people, but um, but I think I would agree with you that their butt crack needs to be covered up and, um, and you know, yeah. things like that. And just the way you present yourself to people. So it's right. about self-respect, but then it's also respecting others and the environment or context that you're in. Obviously, the way that we dress in our office place or workplace or at church is going to look different than when we're at a pool or at the beach, you know, yes. so... Yeah, that was someone brought that, like that. Someone brought that up to me as well. They were they were saying like, well, we teach we teach like our son and our daughter equally like just what's appropriate. Like, yeah, we don't wear bathing suits to church, you know, we don't wear a suit and tie to the beach, you know, like that kind of idea, which did help me kind of frame that conversation better because you're right. You know, I mean, the, the reality is I don't care if it's my son or daughter. If they're short or too short, it's not about like it being a sexual thing. It's just like that's just not appropriate attire for going out to the store, right? Like, it's just not appropriate. So I find that's so far my best line of like attack, so to speak, of having that conversation without making my child feel like, oh, my body is something that is like is hidden because I have especially a lot of women who message me about purity culture and say like, I still struggle with like certain shirts I have to wear because, you know, like my chest is bigger than normal or than, than, than average, I would say. And so I've been taught, I have to hide it all the time. Like, well, I don't want to be that guy with, with their daughter one day, like, you know, making them super self-conscious about something that's just normal. Like it's just their, their breasts, it's a, it's, a, it's a normal body part, you know, it's not the end of the world. But it seems like our culture has really highlighted some of these things and just like purity culture has come in and been like, okay, if culture has accentuated it, we're going to just hide all of it as much as possible. And I just feel like mm -hmm. that's really hurt a lot of people in the process. Yeah. And I think instead of looking at it as we're hiding it because we're ashamed of it or it's something to be ashamed of, you know, the fact that a, a woman has, you know, larger breasts or something, to me, it's more about you're not hiding. It's you're choosing what and who and where, like what context to to share that, I guess. Yeah, that makes um, a lot of sense. In the workplace, I'm going to keep that covered up because at work, it's not about, you know, what my body looks like. It's about my, you know, my intellect, work that I'm doing and talking with my clients and treating them. Um, and so that's not relevant to that context, you know, right. but then it's a different story so right obviously yeah, it is different i think looking at the context is important yeah that's that is really helpful so well listen i mean trying to think here i'm going through my list of questions i wanted to ask you i think i got through through most of them which is wonderful um mm -hmm. we covered a bunch that do we, do we miss anything mm -hmm. mm, i'm looking through yeah we did cover a lot um I mean, what, why don't we end with this as a final question? Because I am almost out of time. But what would you say now to the people who have been really harmed by purity culture? Like they have trauma, like, you know, they're just, they're hurt. How do they start that recovery process? Like, what does that look like? And especially for women. I mean, I think men handle it in a different way. Some don't, don't even know they've been affected by it. But I feel like a lot of women are hyper aware that, yes, I've been really damaged by this purity culture. And now I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, in, I'm in my thirties and I'm married 
and like you said, you know, the sex is terrible and this and that, and I'm, I'm insecure. How do we move forward? How do we help? I think if, if that person was sitting across from me as a friend or as a therapy client, I would, I would first want to validate their feelings and I would want them to learn to validate themselves too, because your pain is real and legitimate and valid and it, and it needs to be attended to, you know, pain is there for us to turn our attention to it and it needs to be soothed and it needs to be validated. Like your shame or your feelings of, you know, of anger at the church or just sadness or grief. Um, all of those feelings are valid and finding safe people to share those things with and to, to connect on that level with, um, to give and receive empathy. That's the antidote to shame. And that's a way to, um, to, you know, to, to deal with those feelings. So first I would validate. And then second, I just really help guide people in, um, deconstructing these myths and being able to separate what's myth and what's truth. Mm. Um, actually going back to the Bible and looking at what are the things that God did promise us? You know, he didn't promise us a spouse if we remain pure, you know, and that was one of the ways that I was affected because like I said, I didn't get married till I was 30, which was quite old in the South and in the mm. conservative circles. Um, and so like, for me, it was like, God really let me down. And I felt like so disappointed and angry at God and disillusioned in my faith of like, why didn't I get this reward that I was promised? And so going back to, um, to scripture and seeing he never promised me this, but what did he promise? You know, he promised his forgiveness um, and redemption. And he promised to never leave me or forsake me, you know, things like that, that I could really hold on to. So, so finding the truth that you can hold on to and being able to discard the myths that have harmed you and realize that those realizing that those were given to you by people as a tool for control and conformity and, and not for your own, you know, thriving. Do you recommend therapy? Of course, <laughs> yeah. as a therapist and as somebody who's, who's been in therapy, you know, off and on, I've been in therapy for years, just my training and schooling yep. and things and, and, and dealing with my own issues. So, yeah, I think, um, I think finding a therapist who's trained in religious integration or religious trauma. Hmm. So, um, necessarily finding a Christian counselor, people can use that term to mean things and, and, yes. and some people stages of deconstruction might not be comfortable with a Christian counselor, but you might want to find someone who's been trained in religious or spiritual issues or religious trauma, and even ask them if they know what purity culture is. And if they, um, and if they have some knowledge or experience with that, I think that would be a way to find a therapist who's going to be the best fit for you. I think that's really good. I mean, even myself, I'm, I, I'm, I have a therapist appointment tomorrow night, which would be good. But, um, you know, I started when I went through my whatever I, I went through a couple of years ago with some anxiety and panic attacks. I started with like a Christian counselor, and he was super great, great guy, and definitely gave me some helpful things. But eventually, I transitioned to like a licensed secular psychologist, and it was infinitely more helpful only because there was <laughs> this sounds so sacrilegious now, but there was like no Bible <laughs> during the, there was no like, well, you know, we, you should pray more and also do this work. It was like, okay, here's the work you need to start doing. And so I think for a lot of people who have been churched we, because we've heard these verses, we've been told to pray, we've been told to read the Bible more. It's almost like in a sense, a little triggering <laughs> to sit in front of a therapist mm -hmm. and hear, well, mm -hmm. have you prayed about it? It's like, 
Yes, I prayed about it. If I did, if I did, and, and, and it worked, I wouldn't be here, you know. So I think that there are a lot of people who are looking for someone who can kind of get out of their that like spiritual Christianese language and be like, listen, I get it. Let's look at like the mental behavior of this. Let's look at some of the you know CBT methods that we can use to kind of mm-hmm. get you back on track. So I'm all about mm-hmm. that for sure. Yeah, and a professional counselor or licensed counselor—that's the key term—is licensed is going to respect your limits on how much you want to bring your faith into the sessions. Like mm. if you want prayer and if you want to talk about scriptures, if you want to uh, look at your Christian beliefs, then, then I would do that as a therapist. But I have clients who say that's not a part of their lives or that maybe like you said, they've just gotten that so much they're burned out from it or they're turned off by it. So, so then, you know, I don't bring it up after that. So it's, it's really respecting the client and what they feel is best for them and not, pushing my own beliefs or approach onto them. Definitely. Well, Dr. Camden, it was great having you, honestly. You've been um, uh, just a treasure trove of wisdom and advice. So I'm sure that people who are listening are going to get some really um, helpful things out of it. So I appreciate you making the time and coming on. Um, Where can people find you? You know, are you online? Is Is there social media? Like plug away. Yeah. My website is drcamden.com. And then I'm on all the social medias as Dr. Camden as well. So, um, so people can go to my website and read my article, the five myths of purity culture. And then I have several other articles on parenting and purity culture or purity culture and shame that they can check out as well as a quiz on which purity culture myth affects you. So after you read about the myths, you go and take this quiz and it'll tell you which of the five myths, you know, you'll see your score for each of them and see which one have I, uh, you know, has, is still affecting me today. And I've had people who've taken it, who've thought that they've done a lot of deconstruction work on it. And they're like, wow, there's still some of that in there There, you know, I was still score getting, you know, high scores on that one myth. And so, so it's really interesting to see how pervasive it is and how just how it continues, you know, even into our thirties or forties or just however, however old we are and however long it's been, it's still there. So, yeah. So I would, recommend that people go and take that quiz. Great. Well, I'll make sure I put that quiz in the show notes along with your other stuff. So um, yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. I'm sure we'll do this again soon. 